Once upon a time, long, long ago, in a land far, far away, there stood a great and mighty city called Isfahan. It was then, as it is now, nestled in the foothills of the Zagros, the mountains that arose when Asia merged with Arabia. Back at the beginning of the 10th century, so in the early 900s, Isfahan existed within a vast empire known to its inhabitants as the Dar al-Islam, the realm of peace. These lands were ruled by al-Mutadid, the 16th caliph of the Abbasid Caliphate. Within Isfahan at this time, lived a famed Muslim scholar. This era, reckoned to be the golden age of Islamic science and medicine, academia and jurisprudence, was famed for such people. This scholar was called Ahmed ibn Rustan Isfahani, known to posterity as Ibn Rusta. Formerly, Ibn Rusta held a civil service rank within the regime. He was the director of the ports of the Caliph al-Mutadid, but he was more famous, and history would remember him more, for composing a text, a very special book. It is called The Book of Precious Things, and it was, despite its title, a comprehensive geography textbook describing not just the Dar el-Islam, but also the Dar el-Halb, the realm of war, the Muslim name for the rest of the world. Contained in its pages are descriptions of the barbarian Vikings who thrived on the plains to the north of Byzantium, and of the Italians who ploughed the waters of the Mediterranean, seeking profit above all things. And it also included what Rusta knew about the lands of the far north, where it is cold, and far beyond the realm of peace. And there, hidden within the pages, is the description of a distant place called Britain. Ibn Rustan describes it as a faraway island with seven kingdoms upon it, and at its heart, was a great port, a mighty emporium that traded with all the world. He was, of course, talking about London. Here, now, in the 10th century, London is known, famed almost, a trade emporium whose reputation was spoken of in distant Isfahan. And yet, cut to merely a century or so later, London was certainly no longer as important. It had been rendered weak. It had been reduced. It had been redacted. This little story of the writings of Ibn Rusta is indicative of something deeply profound happening to the city of London, because London, 
was suffering from a slow-moving disaster, one that took at least a half-century to impact upon it, but whose consequences were to last for centuries. London, and by extension to a lesser degree, England itself, was about to enter a dark age compared to what had gone before. It was about to suffer the most terrible blow to the city since Boudicca had fallen upon it and set it alight. But because the problem itself was caused slowly, glacially slowly, this destruction is often overlooked by others. Hi, my name is Saul, and I would like to welcome you to the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to the history of the city as told as we travel along the rivers of time. You can jump into an episode and just listen to it whole and by itself, or you can follow the whole series, depends how you feel. We've reached the year 1086, and I believe it's time to explain away why I think London was about to enter a dark age, and doing so, bring to an end book two of the city saga. Welcome then to chapter 52 of the story of London. Doomsday. when I first started to take the study of history seriously, a learned and wiser professor of history gave me one important and salient piece of advice. Perhaps it was born of his own natural cynicism, but for some reason it kind of stuck with me. He said that the key to understanding history was always to remember one thing. Whenever you see an epoch of some nation or some place, you will always see around it historians pontificating about the political or religious or cultural reasons why any nation did what it did. But for him, the core reason was always money. The acquisition of wealth, he felt, drove almost all human endeavour. And he extolled us, his students, to always, always seek out the prophet in any historical situation. Even in ages before we had things like recognisable modern capitalism, he always told us, follow the money. It won't always provide us with answers, he said. But more often than not, it will provide an effective backdoor into any historical period and reveal hidden motivations of the actors within that era. Follow the money, eh? Well, that's what this chapter intends to do. We're going to talk about macroeconomics. Brace yourself, but I'll try to keep it interesting. So to understand the economic bedrock of Europe back in the 900s, the era known to many incorrectly as the Dark Ages and to academic types as the late early medieval period, you have to understand the importance of spices. When the Roman Empire collapsed and supposedly civilization fell apart, 
Trade in spices from Asia continued as one of the few bedrocks of global mercantilism that linked Asia to Northern Europe. A proof of this, when the Venerable Bee died in the year 735, amidst his belongings were small amounts of pepper and incense. It's easy to understand why this trade continued. Despite the long distances involved in moving such items, their sheer profitability meant that at every stage of their long journey, so from India and the Spice Islands to either the Persian and the Red Sea, and then to Egypt and the Levant, and then onwards, you could make profit from even the smallest amount. Added to that, while across Europe, Coin-making was, to be blunt, an inexact science for several centuries with frequently debased currency whose value would fluctuate. Spices became a universal reserve commodity that people could use as a currency. By the end of the 10th century, for example, Venetian traders would pay their taxes in Lombardy in pepper, as did German merchants trying to sell their goods in London. Pepper was worth more than its weight in silver, and that silver, by the way, is a secondary factor here. It was during this era that there was a significant increase in mining in the Harz Mountains in today's Germany, which increased the amount of silver bullion to be available in Northern Europe. This increase in silver increased the monetary wealth of the richer members of towns and emporiums and the wealth of the nobility they economically supported, thus driving up demand for pepper and other spices like cinnamon and ginger. And these were exported from India and became readily available across northern Europe in little ten-bound parcels, which then went all the way up to barrels and sacks containing 120 pounds of them. Now, increasing the spice trade in Northern Europe wasn't just caused by the availability in more silver coins. In the latter part of the 10th century, Fatimid Egypt, their own economy now flushed with an influx of gold from Ghana, began to see a growing, I suppose you could call the middle class, a growing number of Egyptians who had an appetite for such spices and now had the means to afford them. The sudden demand and influx into Egypt of these spices from Asia meant that the Red Sea supplemented the Persian Gulf as the main trade route to India, and spices increased in availability, which then led to a drop in their price, and then drew Egyptian and then European merchants to buy their own consignments and sail them north. By the year 1000, for example, hundreds of Italian merchants were living in North Africa and visiting Libya to trade in these precious commodities. These spices were then carried from Italy, over the Alps, and into Northern Europe, and thence to Britain. And we know, as I said, Germanic merchants paid their scavenge fees, something I covered in enormous depth back in chapter 30, in pepper. And why am I going on about all of this? Well, fundamentally, when you ask people to look at the overview of history for this era, we have this lovely narrative that small, backward, early medieval Britain was brought these advanced and expensive things 
from our more developed and advanced neighbours in Europe. The problem with that narrative is that the evidence doesn't seem to actually support this conclusion at all. Around the year 1005, there was a monk living in an abbey in Oxfordshire, a man called Abbot Eilfric. And he wrote a book designed to help the young novices at his abbey learn how to read, write and speak Latin. It was a book wherein he was trying to help them realise the language could be used in day-to-day -day living. And to make it more grounded, it contained descriptions of the type of people these young novices would see in their normal, average, day-to-day -day lives. And in those pages, amidst the descriptions of priests and farmers and yeomen, is a description of English merchants. The merchants this abbot described were adventurous and bold men who risked their lives to sail through stormy and dangerous waters, taking the goods of England to sell abroad and to return with luxury items that so enriched life back home in England. What luxury items? Well, Abbot Aylfric describes their ships returning filled with taffetas and silks, glass and sulphur, wine and ivory, precious gems and gold, and above all, spices. Here are the treasures of 11th century England. Born from this abbot's knowledge of these men and what they do, he gained during the 10th century in England. And while this list may be a literary creation, it is, after all, not a historical text, it's just a guide to Latin composition. It is worth noting that the cargo this abbot describes is identical to the cargo found in Venetian ships mooring up in London in the 15th century. 500 years before the height of European trade to England, he's casually describing the same trade in the same goods originating from merchants who came from England. Keep that little fact in mind. Now, Eilfric's description isn't the only interesting thing about his book. There's also the tone of it. This abbot was describing merchants as a positive asset to the nation of England, as people who were to be admired for what they did. This was actually in direct contrast to what was felt about merchants by priests across Europe at this time. You see, the gaining of wealth was seen as a distinctly non-Christian vice, not a virtue, and had been for many centuries. For early Christian theologians, while the tilling of soil was seen as a morally noble task, and of course the owning of property and being a king was ordained by God, there was a distinct distrust towards merchants. For the likes of church fathers like Tetrullian, St. Jerome, or even St. Augustine, the gaining of wealth encouraged sin. It took your mind off worshipping God. Basically, it was a gateway drug to avarice and greed. Even popes like Leo I warned all that merchants were, well, while not damned, they were easy pickings for the devil. This suspicion remained the prevailing mindset towards merchants in Europe until about the 12th century. And even then, the only bone thrown to merchants was that 
In the 1300s, it was decided that those who made money buying and selling goods were seen as less sinful than those wretched souls who practiced money lending and usury, and as such, merchants gained a little bit of a buy. But ultimately, the prevailing Christian attitude in Europe at this time was that merchants are bad, okay? And that seemed to be the case everywhere, except England. Here was an abbot casually saying, nah, these guys are great, they make everyone richer. This suggests that in Britain and England, especially their native homegrown merchants, were seen as people who were vital to the overall health of a nation. Now, while one book does not make a case, and I'm not saying it does, my point is that this one book is a physical manifestation of a truth we cannot ignore. Ultimately, despite its size and distance from anywhere important on Earth at the time, Britain was a remarkably wealthy little island. The sheer amounts of silver coinage found in Britain from the 9th century, so from the 800s onwards, is actually quite staggering. It's way, way more than the natural resources of this island could supply. So where on earth was all this silver coming from? Well, obviously we just said so. The Hertz Mountains in Germany it was in general circulation in Northern Europe. And how were the nations of England getting hold of so much of this damn silver? Well, obviously, trade. English merchants developed a lot of trade. And what's more, they seem to have been doing this for quite some time. All the way back in chapter 5 of the Story of London podcast, I described the birth of the first English coin, long before something as advanced as the penny was created. We're talking about the tiny schietta, and it was being minted in London Wick in large quantities, but it wasn't the only place. And back then I also described the proclamation by the Mercian king Ethelbald to the bishop of Londonwick, wherein he granted him possession of the tolls to, that were gained from a single merchant ship. So there, all the way back in the 730s, we have evidence of early London being a trade port, having a sophisticated system of tolls and infrastructure, including the creation and maintenance of merchant ships. And London wasn't alone. It was not for nothing that the earliest and principal mints of the English nation were all located in ports. Simply put, merchants from Mercia and Wessex and even fractious Northumbria were sailing across the waters, selling English goods and gaining vast amounts of bullion. And in chapter 6 of the podcast, I went on for a whole episode about how this was the foundation for the rule of King Offa, the Mercian king who turned London into a sophisticated entropot with ties as far away as Baghdad. It was in Offa's Mercia that English coin makers tried to make their own version of gold Muslim dinars. And as I mentioned all the way back in that chapter, not only did Offa develop sophisticated trade links with the empire of Charlemagne, there is a school of thought who advocate that the English didn't copy the Franks when it came to sophisticated coin manufacturing, but rather here in the 8th century, the Frankish Empire of Charlemagne copied the Mercian Kingdom. This bullion was the foundation which built England's vast and incredible wealth. 
And at the heart of this was London. And I offer as proof of that statement, literally the story of London so far, the descriptions of London being the principal coin manufacturing location in England, and by extension, the principal trade port. The whole of chapter 30 is an extension on from chapter 6, showing how after an initial contraction when Alfred the Great moved London from Londonwick to Londonburg, the city had exploded as a massive and busy trade port with strong links across Europe. And throughout all the previous chapters, the twin bedrocks of English trade have been described in detail. You see, England exported two goods in large quantities. Wool and people. Yeah, it's time to look it straight in the face. England was a slaving state. And I mean, according to the Doomsday Book of 1086, even at that late date, at least... 12% of the population of England were slaves. In fact, it's worth noting that the number of slaves in England in 1086, I think, using back of an envelope uh, calculations, but we think that the number of slaves was 10 times greater than the number of Normans living in England at the same time. Slavery was huge business in England with slaves still being reaped on a regular basis from Wales, Scotland, the Irish Sea and the North, as well as slaves sold to the English, gathered by Scandinavian slavers and sold in this huge domestic slave market, where this commodity could then be sold onwards. England's wool and slaves were a desired commodity across Europe, and it is this that English merchants took out across the sea, and then traded it for huge amounts of gold and silver in return that enriched the country disproportionately, really. I mean, from the 8th century, Saxon charters record land being purchased with gold. And by the 10th century, there are more references in charters to gold payments and silver payments. Clearly, these small islands are flushed with precious bullion. So what am I saying? Simply that from the year 750 until the year 1050 or so, when we think of the primitive merchants of Europe, the men who would sow the seeds to become the great mercantile powers of medieval Europe, Venice, Amalfi and Genoa, we must also include in their midst at these early days, London. Seriously, London was turning itself into one of the great European trade powers as rich and as sophisticated as anything found in Italy at the time. So great a trade port, they'd even heard of them all the way in distant Isfahan. And we actually have physical proof of this, not found anywhere in England, but across on the other side of Europe, in the city of Pavia. Now, in the late 900s, Pavia was not part of Italy as we know it, it was a commercial and administrative capital of the nation of Lombardy, which was then tied into the Holy Roman Empire. So it was a Germanic power. Pavia's significance is that it was the one city that the Holy Roman Emperors allowed the merchants of Venice to bring the goods they had imported from Byzantium. So that included such exotic materials as spices. 
because it got the Venetians turning up, it also got merchants from southern Italy who had been trading in spices with Egypt, and they came to Pavia, along with other merchants with places with trade links to Muslim lands, like the residents of Salerno. According to Pavian records, merchants also came here from northern Europe, crossing the Alps, and they would bring items to exchange with these southern-based merchants. And these items were horses, tin, swords, cloth, and above all, slaves. And even bigger than that, the only nationality of these northerners mentioned in the records of Pavia were the English. These merchants were English. The records say the English merchants paid a duty for the right to trade in Pavia. Every three years, they would bring silver weighing a massive 50 pounds worth, along with two hunting dogs and a collection of sword spears and armour, finely crafted and inlaid with beautiful gold filigree. English goldsmiths, the likes of the forebears of Abbot Spear Havoc, we mentioned back in chapter 42, were famed across Europe for their work. The sheer volume of silver they paid suggested that the scale of their trade in Pavia was considerable, and the slaves they brought were large in scale and number. A deeper reading of this documentation and the records in England, which also show the strengths of these links, clearly show that the English had a favourable balance of trade with Pavia. The demand for English slaves in southern Italy and beyond was very great, and huge profits were made from this, as manifested in, well, England gathering staggering amounts of bullion. There's this myth, a powerful one, that the rise of Italian merchants during the, the medieval period, um, it suggests that the ignorant northerners had to be coached by their very sophisticated southern cousins in Italy in how to be a merchant. However, the evidence on the ground suggests it was actually the other way around, that northern Europeans schooled the Italians in the fine art of being international merchant. It sounds very, oh, damn the Italians, but it's not. I mean, there is one unarguable fact here. We have clear documentary evidence of English merchants being active in Italy in the 10th century, and no Italian merchant gets to England until the 12th century. Look, while Muslim merchants were the most advanced and sophisticated in the world at this time, there exists no evidence that Italians copied their more advanced southern neighbours at all, and certainly no evidence that the Italians were more or better equipped to survive and thrive in the world of international trade when you compared them to someone like the English. England under Ethelred Unred, for example, had its great monetary system that seems to have been copied and aped across Europe, and indeed, quite accidentally, since Alfred the Great had unified England, it actually gave the state a centralization that wasn't found anywhere else in Europe. And this centralization worked for English merchants because English trade standards, the uniformity of weights and measures, was something that was copied by the more divided and fractious neighbors across Europe. Trade was crucial to England. Even foreign invaders like King Canute 
He used one of his trips to Europe to renegotiate the tax levies placed upon English merchants by the region of Burgundy. Also keep in mind that the main route to all of this was from England to Germany, down the Rhine and over the Alps, because the route that went through France was more prone to instability and risk. And as such, because of London's location and proximity to the ports that led you to the Rhine, London became the principal beneficiary of this massive trade. And as such, this is why Ibn Rashid had heard of this port all the way in distant Isfahan. London had become the central focus for trade in luxury items and, as such, the trade in pepper. And that's why you can follow um, a clear route of Byzantine and Arabic coins over the Alps, along the Rhine Valley, and then over to the Thames Valley. Towards the end of the Anglo-Saxon era, English merchants, and by extension the merchants of London, reached a position in European commerce that they were not to fill again for hundreds of years. They were now big players, instigators, basically, in mercantile circles, a European superpower. It's worth looking at the increased links between Anglo-Saxon England and Byzantium during this era, manifested by Anglo-Saxon kings taking on board Greek titles, Greek bishops turning up as advisors, and, and the Anglo-Saxons basing their coins on Byzantine coins. And it in fact led to an era where, let's be blunt here, the eldest son of Earl Godwin died in Byzantium, and here in 1086, the mainstay of the Vangarian Guard, who are protecting the Emperor in Constantinople, they're all English Huskals, exiled from the recently Norman-invaded England. This is a powerhouse. So, what went wrong? <laughs> because it is clear, something very drastic went wrong. Here was London as we entered the 11th century, one of the main economic superpowers of Europe, Yet by the end of that century, it had ceased to exist on this scale and would not return to this kind of position for several hundred years. Well, the obvious answer is what went wrong were the invasions of England in the 11th century, specifically the invasion of Canute of Denmark and then the invasion of William of Normandy. William's invasion did the most lasting damage, something I can prove by one simple fact. After 1066... The city of Pavia was to see no more English merchants turning up. I have to say at this point, there are no simple explanations to any situation. And I've got to mention now two other things that were going on outside of England that helped cripple the merchants of London. The first is the rise of new Italian powers. 11th century Pisa and Genoa were growing in stature during this era and they took a much more aggressive position towards their Muslim neighbours across the Mediterranean. And basically their growing naval power and capital allowed them to challenge the monopoly previously enjoyed by Venice over luxury items. And added to that, being as Pisa and Genoa were much closer to Lombardy, they began ex exercising increasing domination over the Lombard trade markets. At the same time as that, we must say that it's during this period that the Normans began to erode the English slave trade. I'll dedicate more time to this in another chapter. 
But William the Conqueror seems especially to have had issues with the, the widespread exploitation of slaves. But actually, and oddly, for puritanical reasons. I mean, it doesn't appear that William was moved by his new nation exploiting human beings for work, but he does seem to dislike the widespread sexual abuse of slaves that was going on. But in the mainstay, what crippled England as an economic superpower was the combined invasions over a 50-year era of Canute of Denmark and William of Normandy. Because look at what we've been mentioning again and again for the last few chapters. The Danegels inflicted upon the English during the latter part of Ethelred's rule, where huge amounts of bullion were given away to buy time. And then there was Canute's extraordinary fines upon England, and these removed staggering amounts of liquidity from the English economy. All that surplus silver that had been acquired over centuries by all that English trade was being removed, melted down to make new coins and shipped abroad. And Canute didn't just inflict these gigantic Danegills when he took over. He was effectively paying for a continual year-on-year -year tribute to cover the costs of that garrison of 40 ships based in London for decades afterwards. A policy that was actually kept in place by his sons Harold and Arthur Canute, and it was only removed by Edward the Confessor after he had kept it going for a decade. And don't forget the Dane Guild inflicted upon England by Arthur Canute, who basically increased the size of that fleet to 90 ships. And then after all of that, and Edward had started to try and help the economy recover, Along comes William of Normandy, who for a Norman king inflicted a identical Danegeld upon England when he took the throne. Then he inflicted at least two more Danegelds to pay off Viking attacks, because his policy towards the Danes was kind of identical to Ethelred's. And behind that was the systematic robbery of the English economy. Canute and then William crippled the English economy and this contraction was manifested as a diminishing in the status of England and London. Now again, these are not my words. This is a historical argument that I just happen to agree with. And there are historians who provide a more rosy interpretation of the impact upon London by the Normans. However, as a historian who insists on focusing upon the timeline of events through the prism that is London, then I have decided that 1086 is an arbitrary date I have chosen to say that all these events marked an apocalyptical, horrific moment and that it was finally impacting upon London. This is the doom of London. What it had once been was now no more. It would, in time, return to this status. In time, it would become a major European port. And in fact, ahead of us lies the, the irrefutable truth that one day London will become the principal port and financial market of Earth itself. More wealth would be accumulated here than anywhere else on the planet combined. But not here and not now. Here and now in 1086, from the perspective of London, a new narrative is set before us. This city's history rejects the idea that after Rome left, the land lifted itself out of the Dark Age and moved towards growing wealth and complexity. It rejects the idea that the Normans saved the nation in any way. 
Here we can clearly see that the Normans crippled London, sent it backwards in terms of wealth and development, removed it from the European, nay, global stage, allowed a patently false narrative that their coming was positive, and sent London into what was to become its dark age, a dark age that was to last at least two centuries. This is doomsday, here and now, London's doomsday. It was more significant and profound than the doomsday book compiled by William the Conqueror in the last years of his reign. This is the moment I believe that it finally all changes for London and the Dark Age began. And perhaps it could have been prevented, but this crippling of English liquidity then caused a new problem. You see, the economic evidence is pretty condemning when it comes to what follows. The growing power of Flemish cloth merchants had been increasing before this economic doomsday. The growth of East Coast mints in England, of which London was part of them, was driven in part by Flemish cloth merchants purchasing English wool in large quantities with silver. The combined impact of the deprivations of the Vikings, followed by the Danish invasions, had severely weakened domestic cloth demand, which allowed these Flemish merchants move into the market more. And then they seek to use the East Coast ports that were not London to cut out London's successful merchants and middlemen. So, from the ravages of both Sven, Forkbeard and Canute, having removed huge amounts of liquidity from the English economy, then to the later post-1066 era, which compounded this as William and his successor, William Rufus, made use of simply every single legal device the nation had to extract every single penny the English had. And much like the money that had gone to the Danes, this left the country to finance stuff in Normandy and never returned. And now add to this the sheer level of destruction inflicted upon England in 25 counties by the Norman occupation and pacification of England, which had left... It'd been huge. It devastated homes, laid lands to waste, it depleted populations. Whole communities had been able to meet the demands placed upon them by their new landlords. London had managed to avoid the fate inflicted upon York, but the counties of Middlesex, Sussex and Herefordshire had seen their revenues depleted by the conquest, again driving down domestic demand, and this reduced the purchasing power, which reduced the revenues available to London merchants. So they just couldn't buy their way out of it or get monies to get their way out of it. And then finally, we know that some wealthy Normandy-based families moved into London during this era, including the likes of the ancestors of Thomas Beckett. But there was no obvious French trading quarter that emerged in London during the conquest era. And this is deadly for London because the Doomsday Book revealed that there were new French boroughs in places like Northampton, Norwich, Nottingham, as, as far north as Pontefract and Richmond. And new ports arose on the East Coast like Boston and Lynn. And these were donating a significant shift away from London as the centre of the wool trade. The London economy kind of collapsed. And as we mentioned in previous chapters, the percentage of coins being minted in London at this time fell off the cliff as its economy contracted and bullion started coming in shorter supply. The sudden and dramatic decline in English merchants and London merchants travelling across Europe denotes the domination of the English wool trade by foreigners and English mercantile interests reduced to becoming 
middlemen at most, trying desperately to facilitate deals their foreign rivals left to them. And then it didn't help that the mining, so prevalent in the mountains of Germany, began to diminish from the 1040s onwards, so that by 1070, England was to suffer from a shortage of silver. And thus, the doomsday is revealed. Now, please do not think that in placing the attribution of blame as the destructive impact of the Normans upon London, that I'm in some way advocating the Anglo-Saxon state was superior. It wasn't. The reason why the Danes and then the Normans were able to decimate the economy of this nation was due to systematic and deep-rooted failures within an inherently self-destructive political system. And while the Norman conquest saw a three-century contraction in the London economy, understand that overlooked it wasn't just a trade and pepper, this was a slave port, a dark stain upon London and any economy built upon slavery either has to become increasingly monstrous than it previously was or suffer like this. The Anglo-Saxon state itself was doomed and damned and we must never forget that. So everything that's going to come in the story of London will seem the same as it was. This is merely a historical theme playing out over a long time frame. I mean, people did not just wake up in 1087 and go, well, that's it, London screwed. Okay, they kind of did do that, but that's for an entirely separate reason. But by picking this date and this event, I believe it colours what is to come enough to describe a new section in London's history. The city will carry on much as it did before, but something has changed. Something fundamental. London has changed the place, and we're going to see this reflected in the events to come. I had called the second section, book two of the story of London, the last 34 chapters, the Kingdom of London, because it was an era that London began acting like it could choose the kings of England. And allow me to say that this behaviour is not going to suddenly end, far from it. Time and again, they will influence the choice of kings of England like they're some kind of noble landowner. And indeed, the worst example of this, the time when London just got so pissed off at the King of England, they hired a foreign prince and tried to put him on the throne. That's still to come. So the Kingdom of London is not dead, nor is this sentiment even diminished. But from here on in, it was to try and do this while coping with a much more savage time. Previous to this, London had been a power that emerged in a fracturing era of the English polity, breaking apart due to its own inherent flaws. Now it would do it in an era where there was no real English state or functioning English state, merely a failed land held together by violence and, at best, cultural ties. Once this island hosted seven kingdoms upon it, and now it remained as one in name, but we're going to see a flux between utter carnage and chaos or draconian dictatorship. This is to be the dark age we shall enter now, going forward. And this is the backdrop to the whole of Book 3 of the Story of London. The London dreamed about by geographers in Isfahan was dead, gone. It would never return. But in its place, something stronger would emerge tempered by calamity, bloodshed, and horror. And the account 
of this calamity and bloodshed and horror shall be the mainstay of book three of the story of London. And I'll leave this here, as I think that's enough for now. Thank you for listening. Slightly overlong episode, but it's the end of season two, so let's have a big finale. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you can follow along. Please note, if you ever disagree with anything I say or wish to correct me when I get something wrong, and trust me, I do make mistakes, do us a favour. If you can follow the links to get to where I post up the scripts here, there's a website called Imgur, and you are free to comment and contribute and correct me. And I'm more than willing to get into debates and discussions, especially if, for example, you disagree with this theory. Okay, that's enough from me. Thank you for all your support. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to shut up now. Bye.